0: Good morning. Uh, we are celebrating, um, although it will be a time of a little bit of mourning, but ultimately be celebrating uh, next week. Uh, Mikey and Jerry uh, will be sending them off next Sunday. And so we've been announcing this for the last couple of weeks, but God has called Mikey and Jerry uh, to a church in Hayward uh, where they're going to move the mission forward. Amen. Yeah. And uh, and so we've been talking about this all month, but next, next week, uh, Mikey will preach, and Jerry's going to come up. They're going to bless us. We're going to pray for them and bless them. We're going to collect an offering, so... Keep the dollars in your pocket. Let's bless them big time next week. We also have some things that we just want to bless them with, and so it's going to be a celebration. And then Mikey and Jerry, they're going to keep, they're going to bless us, and Mikey's going to preach his last. Well, it won't be his last Sunday because uh, he'll be back. But nonetheless, uh, just an opportunity for all of us to show love. So please um, make sure that you are back next week, and I know it's going to be a blessing. And so uh, love you guys. I know we're all we're all praying we're already. Crying tears, like no, no, we're not supposed to right now. That's next week. We'll cry next week. Uh, uh, But nonetheless, uh, um, we're just we're excited about that. So please be here, show support, love. Uh, We're just, and you'll also get a little bit more kind of what what God's put on their heart, and just a little bit more clarity on what God's doing in Hayward. And so, uh, so one more thing before we get into today's message, I am so blessed uh, to announce that for the first time in the history of our inspire connects last week we had 101 people go from sitting in rows to circles we had 101 people go from sitting in rows to sitting in circles that's over 50 almost 60% of our sunday morning attendance throughout the week attended a connect in the bay area Uh, Where they fellowship together in friendship and they also learn the word together and I am just blessed. The first week we had 89, last week we broke 100. If you have not checked a connect out, they are here and they are ready for you. And we have 10 for you to choose from. You can go online. You can look at each connect. You can send a message. We'll send you the address and details. But they have been amazing, and I just can't wait for them to continue to grow. It's just a really beautiful thing. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to the book of Nehemiah chapter 2. Last week we finished off Nehemiah, the end of Nehemiah chapter 1, and this week we are now entering into chapter 2. Obviously you can go to our website, you can go to our podcast if you want to hear the sermon series and you want to hear all of chapter 1, but we are jumping into chapter 2 today. And so what we'll do is uh, we'll go through Nehemiah 2 And we're only going to look at the first eight verses today. And from these verses, we're going to ultimately pull out three lessons from these first eight verses. Um, And so if you're a note taker or you just like to not be surprised, here's the lessons for you. We're going to pull out lessons on God's timing, God's positioning, and God's favor. And then ultimately, we're going to conclude on one big idea that I'm calling the revelation of the big picture. We need a revelation of the big picture to understand God's timing, God's position, and God's favor. Amen? And so we're going to jump right in it without any, uh, without any more uh, delay. And so if you are there, if we can go to Nehemiah chapter 2. And the first thing that we're going to talk about this morning is God's timing. You see, you and I have a time frame that we work on, but God has his own timing. And a lot of times, it's just the fact that time exists, it gets in the way of what God wants to do. You see, God sits outside of time. Time doesn't affect God. You and I, we're affected by time. In fact, we're all going to die at some point, and so time revolves around this idea that at some point it's going to run out. But for God, he is eternal. And so sometimes his timing isn't your timing. And so we have to understand this idea of timing in order to understand what God has in store for you and I in the big picture. Amen. Now, if you remember, um, in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, there was a date that was given to us. Uh, In Nehemiah 1.1, it said this, now it happened in the month of Chislev. Now, Chislev is basically what we would call the November-December time. Now, if you're in Nehemiah chapter 2, I want you to look at the first maybe four lines of chapter 2. We'll get another time frame, and it says this, Uh, now it was in the month of Nisan. And so, Nissan was actually in the February in March time. So here's what I want you to see. Well, what you and I don't see that I want you to see this morning is that four months have passed between chapters 1 and chapters 2. That means four months have gone by, four months where Nehemiah has been praying and fasting and seeking the Lord regarding the burden that God placed in his heart in chapter 1. Four months have passed by of prayer and fasting before Nehemiah ever begins to even publicly speak about the next steps or the actions that he wants to take. And so there's a lesson on timing here that I want to share with you briefly before we move forward. Kingdom impact. Impact for God will almost always require, are you ready for this? Some kind of time testing. Kingdom impact. What you do for the Lord or what God has called you to do or what He placed in your heart Will always, almost always require some kind of time testing. Let me explain. I love passionate people. I love passionate, gifted people. I love passionate, gifted people who are eager, amen, they're eager to contribute. It's music to a leader's ear. Have you ever led something, maybe, maybe at your job or, or maybe uh, in a volunteer position or maybe at the church? If you've ever led anything, uh, it's music to your ears when a volunteer or somebody who works under you comes up to you and says, I'm passionate, I'm gifted, I'm excited, and I'm ready to work. It's just a beautiful thing to hear when you're leading something that people will come alongside of you and be passionate and gifted and eager But here's the tension that I want to present to you today. Giftedness alone does not move the mission forward. God's looking to marry your giftedness with your character. And he's looking to marry your giftedness with your commitment. And this is why time testing is so valuable. Giftedness can be seen almost immediately. But only time reveals character. Passion can launch a vision. But only passion over long periods of time will ensure that the vision is protected and realized. Now, for some of us, it's not the start of something that God is trying to cultivate, but it's the endurance and longevity that he is most concerned about producing in your life. This isn't just true for a vision or a mission or a purpose, but this is also true for your discipleship. How many times in emotion we say yes to the Lord, but the minute something happens in our lives, we give up and give in. And in emotion, in the moment at a service while the music was playing just the right song, you begin to have some tears and you begin to respond to the Lord. But over a longer period of time, that, that response of passion was ultimately doled out by pain and frustration and angst that hit your life. Yeah. Anything you do for the kingdom, whether it's a call, a mission, or a vision, or it's your own walk with God, will always go through a test of time. Because endurance is what you need the most. More than giftedness, you need endurance. Are you with me? So we need to be careful to discern the time test. Discern it. Realize it when it's happening to you. Wait a minute. I'm being tested by time. Because what you may think... Is God holding you back? Might be what God is using to develop character and endurance in your life. Here's the question we all have to ask ourselves once we find ourselves in the midst of being tested by time. Will I trust God during this time test? Or will I... Take the reins in my own hands and move it forward in my own strength. You know, as a pastor planting a church, you always run into people who are so excited to be a part of something. But even from my end as a leader, it's always really important for me to make sure that there's a time testing Because just because someone is eager and passionate doesn't necessarily mean it's time for them to step into that place of contribution. Right? Because God doesn't just want you to accomplish something. He wants to conform you into his son. He wants you to look like Jesus while accomplishing it. If it was was just about accomplishing something, God would be using you. And he wants to use you, but to, that word being used is not a real friendly word. Like, I don't want to just be used. Like, don't just use me for something great. There is something greater, and I'm going to talk about that. But during that process, he also wants to develop inside of you the character of Christ. It's not just about uh, you getting this church to another level, but it's a this church isn't, isn't built. You, the, let me say this. You didn't come to build this church. This cur- church is built for you. Because when we mix that up, what we do is we make the people for the program when the program is supposed to be meant for the people. Are you with me on that? I may be speaking to just a few of you today, but it's so important. And so if you're a gifted, eager person and you feel like you're in a season of pause and hold back, discern that it might be a time test and there is something that God is trying to produce inside of you. You with me on that? And the question is to ask, will I... Will I trust God's hands or will I put it in my own hands? So, from Chislev in chapter one to Nisan in chapter two, I can imagine Nehemiah praying this prayer Lord, either take this burden from me or embed it so deep inside of me that I'm willing to do whatever it takes. No matter how long and how much it takes. I can imagine during the four months when he first felt the angst and the passion and the burden. And many of us will feel it and then we move to action. He prays. He prays and he prays again. I can imagine during that four months he's saying, Lord, is this burden real? Is it just another flavor of the month? Y'all know what the flavor of the month is. Some of you know this, right? Some of you, you need to learn that, hey, it's not the flavor of the month, right? Some of you be doing too much. You got a new business. You got it's something you want to do all the time. And the Lord said, Well, wait a minute, at some point, what I want to do is I want to put you on pause. And in that pause place, there's something I want to produce inside of you. And the part of the pause is to even discern if that was just a quick moment of emotion or if that was truly me. Amen. And so I can imagine Nehemiah is praying, Lord, either take this burden from me or or embed it so deep inside of me that when I say yes to it, I'm willing to do it no matter the cost, no matter how long, no matter whatever it takes. But I won't do it if it costs me something and if it takes too long if you didn't embed it deeply. That's a powerful prayer. But it's a scary prayer, right? Any FOMOs in here? Right? Fear of missing out. Any, any I fear of commitment, all these different things. That's like, oh, you know, like. Is there a halfway to do this, <laughs> right? I'm always looking for the middle ground, right? Well, can I get like one in and one out, you know, right? And I get it. And let me just say this. I don't want to be that guy that just presumes that God always deals one way. He, he deals differently with people. I'm just giving you some precepts. I'm just giving you some concepts, some principles to think through. Uh, God moves differently within people, but ultimately the kingdom does. The kingdom does bring about time testing because time reveals character and commitment. Let's continue. Nehemiah chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4. It reads like this In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine, this is Nehemiah speaking, and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad? seeing you are not sick. This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I want to just pause right there. You're not allowed to be sad in the king's presence. If you worked next to the king, you better fake it till you make it. You better smile and pretend, even if life is terrible, because what they wanted to make sure was that the king was surrounded by positive vibes. They never wanted the king to think that anything negative was taking place. And so to be sad in the presence of the king meant that you could be punished. So Nehemiah was afraid because the king suspects that there's sadness of his heart. Let's continue. Nehemiah says, then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Good job, Nehemiah. But he gets bold here. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? Jackpot. This, what are you requesting? This was the question Nehemiah had been praying for. It was basically an invitation for Nehemiah to step into God's favor. I want you to think about this. King Artaxerxes was literally the only man in the world who had the authority and the resources to make this impossible vision of rebuilding Jerusalem possible. Talk about making the pitch of your life. Are you with me? Here Nehemiah had been placed in front of an angel investor, Jerry. She knows this deal. Here he, Nehemiah had been placed in front of an angel investor who had the connections, the resources and the money to make it happen. This was kind of like the Old Testament's version of Shark Tank. Anybody watch Shark Tank? I'm a fan of Shark Tank. It's kind of like the Old Testament's version of Shark Tank, but with one big difference. None of this was the result of Nehemiah's efforts. Nehemiah didn't own the vision. He didn't earn the position to stand before the king. Uh, This was a divine setup. It was a sovereign act uh, for God, by God. And so for the rest of today's message... I want to show you how positioning and favor flows from God's glory. I'm sorry. I want to show you how. I knew I said that. I want to show you how positioning and favor flows for God's glory from God's big picture. It's for his glory from his big picture. Now, if you can view God's favor, and if you can view God's position as by him and for him, you can become a disciple and we can become a church that accomplishes uh, the greater missional purposes in life. If we can view favor and positioning as from God and for God and by God, then we can accomplish missional purpose at a high level. And we can glorify God in accomplishing that mission. Now, if you remember, and I want you to look back at this, you remember how chapter 1, verse 11, how chapter 1 ended for Nehemiah. We're going to take a quick look back. Nehemiah prays for favor at the end of chapter 1. He says this, give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So not only does Nehemiah uh, pray for favor, but then after praying that prayer, he describes his position. He says, now I was a cupbearer to the king. I want to focus on this concept of God's positioning. I want you to know and I want you to see. Nehemiah, he was an exile who became a cupbearer. Everything about that description of Nehemiah's position feels humble and very unfortunate and tragic. Nobody in their own design, by their own design or their own doing, would put themselves into captivity, in slavery. This was God's doing, not Nehemiah's doing. But he was not just in exile, but he was positioned as a cupbearer to the king. But I want to just describe to you a little bit what a cupbearer is. You see, a cupbearer was basically a personal bodyguard. Um, Everywhere the king went, the cupbearer went too. It was kind of a cool deal. You see, the cupbearer was a taste tester. He was tasked to drink the king's wine before the king ever drank it ensuring that the king would never be poisoned and a part of an assassination, uh, assassination plot, right? And so the cupbearer, the, the good part about this is he got to travel all over the place, and he got to eat and drink whatever the king got to eat and drink, and that's pretty awesome. The bad part of this, if there was any poison in there, he'd die. Some of you are like, I kind of feel like that's my job right now. But here's what I want you to see. Are you ready for this? The job description required of the cupbearer gave the cupbearer an unusual amount of personal access to the king. You see where I'm going with this? Because he was a cupbearer, he had an unusual amount of personal access to the king. Now, I want a quick little side note, and I love my side notes. But here here it goes. Some of us try so hard to be the king, don't we? We spend the majority of our lives coveting positions at the top. Only to realize that we're missing the God opportunities that come from being the cupbearer. Sometimes the best position to be in to fulfill God's purposes is not the position of the influencer, but the person who's right next to the influencer influencing the influencer. We strive for the top, we want to be at the top, the top of the food chain, get paid the most. We look for ways in which we can, we look for ways in which our careers can move forward and move ahead. And I'm not, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's a beautiful thing. But it, I do have a problem when that becomes our primary pursuit and we forget about the kingdom. So here's an important lesson regarding positioning. You and I. We have to learn to become comfortable knowing that God's sovereignty is not always my choice. God's sovereignty is not always my choice. You see, when we begin to see our lives in this way, it affects everything we do and everywhere we go. Let me break this down and give you just some real simple examples. When God's sovereignty, when we begin to realize that God's sovereignty is not my choice, it affects everything. So let me give you some simple examples. Number one, it changes the way we see our jobs and our careers. I remember I was a youth pastor for 10 years, and it was always a desire of mine uh, to somehow get into the public schools and to minister the gospel. And at first, this seemed like an impossible task, but as time went on, I began to meet students, and I began to meet teachers and administrators who loved Jesus. And I remember talking to this one teacher who worked at a pretty rough school, and I was asking him how he handled teaching a generation of students that seemed so angry and so hard. I remember walking through that particular campus, and it just felt like there was just so much pain and anger and rebelliousness. You ever walked on a, a campus where you just felt that? Some of you high school students, you ever on your campus and you just, just there's just so much. And, and it's the poor teachers are in there and, and they're, they're just, I mean, the, the teachers, the kids are running it, not the teachers, right? And you also can see it on some of the teachers' faces. And some of you students in here, you know this. You have some teachers, you feel like they just gave up. They ain't even teaching you anymore. And so I had asked them, how do you, But a generation in a particular school, in a particular area that seems so rebellious and angry, how do you deal with that? I mean, I couldn't imagine how many times he just wanted to quit. And I'll never forget what he told me. He said, I endure because I don't see myself as a teacher. He said, I I see myself as a secret agent on a mission to bring light into darkness. And this is exactly what he did, guys. Uh, As long as he was teaching in that school, the door was always open for the gospel and for Christian clubs. Because Christian clubs and students who were starting Christian clubs would always have access to an administrator and a classroom. And I learned that in his 20-plus years of teaching, he had seen several revivals take place on that campus. Now, listen, listen. In fact, he was the first teacher and really the last teacher that I had ever seen personally open up his classroom so that we could come into that classroom and pray and worship. Of all the years that I had youth pastored, I had never seen a night that we spent at this particular school where the floor was covered with students in tears praying for their high school campus. And I remember thinking to myself, when this guy retires, I wonder what's going to happen. You see, when we understand God's sovereignty, we see ourselves as gospel agents. When we understand God's sovereignty, we not only see ourselves as gospel agents, but we find God-given assignments everywhere we go. Everywhere we look. And here's the challenge. What would it look like? What would this church look like? What would your life look like if you began to view your work as your ministry? What would it look like if it wasn't just a place for you to get a paycheck? If it wasn't a place for you to check in and check out? If it wasn't just a place where you just got to get through and get home to your family. But if you looked at your work as your ministry and you looked at it as if I am strategically placed in a position to bring God's glory. What would it look like if you said, you know what, heaven is my employer and God's my boss. What would that look like? I wonder how you would wake up every morning. I wonder if there would be a little bit more purpose to the destitute. I wonder if you would find satisfaction knowing that you're living for his glory and not your paycheck. I wonder how the cities in the Bay Area would be affected if people just began to see this. It affects the way we view our jobs. It affects the way we view our career. Let me give you a very, another practical example. And this is so Bay Area. And so even as I was writing this, because there's some people, I don't want you to feel like I was thinking about you in particular. This is just Bay Area, but it's, it would affect the way we relocate. And I realized in the Bay Area, we're going to have relocations happening all the time. So it's so important you take these ideas with you to the next place. And you know what relocation means? It doesn't, just, it doesn't mean that we're just a church that's going to lose people. It means we're a church that's going to send people. And that if we disciple and empower correctly, wherever you relate, relocate to, the gospel is winning in that neighborhood that you're going to. Are you with me? If God's sovereignty was more important than my choice, it would change the way college students would look for colleges. It would change the way we view where we're going to school. You see, normally the primary concern would be something like, do they have a good business program? But even more important than if they have a good business program The prayer should also be, God, is there a church I can participate in? Are there a body of believers on campus that are on mission for something greater? I'm not mad at you going to the best business programs in in the country. But what I'm asking you is, where where does the kingdom of God line up in that pursuit? And I wonder if the best business programs, if they didn't have a church and a campus on mission, if you would still go there, if you would maybe find a place that has an okay business program, but there's mission happening on that campus. It would change the way we look for schools. It would change the way we shop for churches. right? Let's be real. We got church shoppers. We got some in here probably today right? checking us out. Right? What's a church shopper? Let me tell you what a church shopper is. You know, there are people that just kind of get saved and just they're, they're born in a church. Other people say, I've been saved before. I've been to a few churches. Now God has called me on. There's nothing wrong with this, okay? But I'm just kind of looking for a place to land. It would change the way we would shop for churches. It would change the way we would choose a church. It wouldn't just be about what the church has for me. But it would be very much about what my family can bring to the church. All of a sudden, when we're sitting down, it's, it's not, well, the mu- how's the music? Let's just, you know, to see if the music's good. Okay, I like it here. How's the kids' ministry, right? Because that's super important. And can I just say this? Again, As I, I, these are dumb dichotomies. You want both, amen? Know it's like, no oh, one's like, that's a terrible kids' ministry. Let's go here, you know? I get that. I get that. But I'm just trying to ch- flip the paradigm a little bit and get you a little uncomfortable. Right? It's not just about, oh, how's the music here? How's the kids' ministry here? And, again, all of those things are super important. But it becomes, well, what can I, is this church on mission? Is this church preaching and speaking the gospel? Is it a God-glorifying, word-preaching church? And there's a, is there a mission that me and my family can participate in? It's not, hey, what, what can I necessarily, what can this church do for me? But at some point, what can I do for this church? Wow. Amen. And you know, I had to go here for the movers, <laughs> the relocators. I recognize, and I said this earlier, we live in the Bay Area. <laughs> I tell my wife all the time, we'll probably see a lot of people move because housing here is ridiculous, and the school districts can be a little frustrating sometimes. Amen? I get it. There are other places that you might go, we might go. But I want you to hear my heart on this. Um, even before a relocation, to ask yourself man what 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 is driving my relocation is it my worry not is it my our our need for comfort or our need for and if that's happening god could be in the midst of that he could speak through that and so i'm i'm okay with that happening but along with that drive and that need should also at some point be a prayer of okay god where I'm going next, how can I strategically move into the place that you're calling me to go to so that it's not just cheaper, right? It's not just more affordable. Or it's not just better school districts. or It's not just, you know, a better scene, but it's also a place where I can be on mission so that the neighborhood that we go into, the gospel of Jesus Christ is furthered. That, na- that neighborhood won't die because your family is moving into that neighborhood. Amen. Here's what I want you to get. God's sovereignty changes the way we view success, which, which changes the way we make everyday decisions. And as we mature in our walk and become more missional in our thinking, every decision becomes an opportunity to bring glory to God. To bring glory to God. So this brings us to our final lesson on favor. Favor flows for you. No, favor flows for God's glory. I am tired of hearing pastors and churches teach favor for you as if favor is for your own ends. God's means for your own ends. Tired of that. Favor is not for you. It could flow through you. But it's not for you. It's for the purposes of God's glory. Now let's continue to read Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to read verses 4 through 8. You guys are doing great. Then the king said to me, Remember, we stopped on this. What are you requesting, jackpot, shark tank? Now, look what he does. So I pray to the God of heaven. Now, Nehemiah is a praying man. He had just been spending four months of prayer, right? I mean, he'd been praying and fasting, but he prays again in that moment, which also tells us that it's not just important to pray in our private times, but in that moment, man, drop a prayer. Drop a prayer right before you go into your boss. Lord, get right now, just for your glory, give me strength. Show, give me wisdom. Drop Nehemiah's right there. That's got to be a scary moment. He's been praying and fasting. He's got the vision, the burden. But the king says, what do you request? He's like, oh, shoot, Lord, please, I need you. <laughs> God. <laughs> you ever did that before? <laughs> I'm sure you have. Like, a lot of us, it's the private prayer we need to work on, but those oh, shoot <laughs> prayers, we got that one down. <laughs> They're like, yeah, that's the one I got. <laughs> so I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king if it pleases the king if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it you see Nehemiah pitches the vision right there that's the vision he pitches it send me to Judah to my father's graves so that I can rebuild the city my vision is to rebuild the city he pitches his vision. And the king said to me, and I love that the Bible includes this the queen was sitting beside him. <laughs> Nehemiah, you're good. <laughs> He's, I'm going to wait for the day that the queen's actually here, right? His wife's right next to him. She's like, honey, you better give it to him. Right? Amen. It's a husband that understands. How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Now, this shows that in that time of prayer, that Nehemiah, that four months of prayer, he had been strategizing. He was ready. So when the king asked him, hey, what does this look like? He didn't say, "Uh, well, uh," he said, you know what, here's what it is. Are you with me on that? Let's continue to read. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let Letter be given to me to or let letter be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. Whoa, Nehemiah, isn't that crazy? He he was like, the king's like, well, what do you want? He's like, well, here's what I want. Um, Number one is I want you to let me pass. Let me go to Judah. Number two is I want you to give me basically a security detail so that while I'm passing, I'm protected. And number three is give me some timber, lots of timber, so that I can take it back to rebuild the city. It's a pretty bold ask. And you know what I love? He also said, oh, and can I get a little bit extra because I want to build my house too. I love that part. He's not only asking for wood for the city, but he's also asking for his own house. There's always room in God's plan for you and I. It's never just about, here you go, you're going to be broken on the floor. And sometimes, God, there may be seasons of that, but you're always going to be taken care of. God's got you. He's got you covered. He's got your back. He's concerned about In his story, you're also in there. And when I read that, I just never forget, man, I go into full-time ministry. It's done for me because we don't make any money. Amen? Right? It's done. I better kiss owning a house goodbye. I better better kiss owning anything goodbye because when I plant a church, it's done. Not to mention the people that come to church think that the pastor should be poor because that's more holy. So I'm double done. God forbid I get a nice car and pull in. Oh, pastor. I'm like, you got like three. Can I get one? Okay, that was the flesh, y'all. Just forgive me. Forgive me. Forgive me. But Nehemiah is like, hey, I, I, I want to go. Will you send me? Number two is we give me letters to pass? Number three is give me wood to build the city. And by the way, can you give me a little extra because I need to build my house too. Maybe that was just for me. <laughs> now listen to this. And the king granted me what I asked. Look how Nehemiah says, For the good hand of God was upon me. Yes. He sensed God's favor. And when he sensed God's favor, he said, I'm going to make the ask. And so in verse 5, he asks, Send me to Judah. Nehemiah is wise enough to know that without the king's willingness to send him, his mission will fail. He knew he needed to be sent. Number two, in verse 7, he says, let me pass through. Not only did he need the king to send him, but he needed a guarantee of his protection. Nehemiah knew he would pass through enemy territory and that these enemies did not want to see God's city rebuilt. Without the king's security detail, he would be susceptible to attack. He needed to be sent, but he needed to be protected. And finally, number three in verse 8, he says, give me timber. Again, Nehemiah knew he needed to be sent. He also knew he needed to be protected. But none of that would matter if the king didn't give him his resources. Are you with me? None of that wouldn't matter. The king didn't give him his resources. You know what that reminds me of? The Great Commission. Go. Jesus says, Go. Go into all the world. Go into all the nations. And what does he say? Make what? Disciples. He says, Go, and he says, make disciples. But did you know he says before he tells him to go, he says, You know what? All authority belongs to me. Jesus says, All authority is mine. I am king. And because all authority belongs to me, he says, I'm commissioning you, I'm sending you to go and go into all the nations, make disciples, baptize them, teaching them all the things that I've commanded you because what? I am with you always even until the end of the age. Hear me out. In asking for favor, to accomplish the mission and vision of God, Nehemiah is in the same place that you're in. And King Artaxerxes is in the same place that Christ is in. Christ is the king, and he has sent you and I. You have been sent. What are you waiting for? You've already been commissioned. And I always say this, but it's it's kind of a value of our church. Uh, If you're waiting to get on stage to do ministry, then you've missed the commission. In fact, you who are not on stage have a better opportunity to reach the lost than those that have come on stage full time. We all have a part to play. So the king has given you his commission by telling you to go. And oh, by the way, before he told you to go, he said, guess what? I have all authority. All authority belongs to me. Which means he's not only sent you, but he's also given you protection. Now, can I tell you about this protection? It's not always bodily protection because the disciples were martyred. Don't get this protection incorrect. Incorrect. He's going to send you to dangerous places. He's going to send you to wild places. There's going to be a possibility that you might be harmed. There are Christians right now meeting all over the world that have to do it in hiding because their lives are being threatened and killed. This isn't a, please don't get this protection aspect wrong. This isn't a bodily protection. It doesn't mean that your family is going to be healthy. Some of you, you may have to go through some things. And that's the hard part is when we go on mission, we know that there might be some things. So we always want to opt towards safety. But God says, no, I'm gonna send you. But all authority has been given to me. So what kind of security? I need some security, God. What kind of security are you gonna give me? I'm gonna give you spiritual security. I have all authority over the unseen and the seen. And that no matter what takes place in you and your family, my glory should be your number one priority. And in the end, know that I have you back. I have your back. I have you covered. And you are eternally in my hands. And even if your body is destroyed, you're not destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. And so I have given you a protection that goes deeper than your body because some people will have to die for the gospel so that the seeds of the gospel can raise up. Now, now look, I'm not, we live in America. We're kind of comfortable. I'm not advocating that we have to do that. But I am saying we have to understand what protection means. So we're commissioned. We're protected, and we're resourced. He says, all authority has been given to me. From this authority, you're going to get this power. He says, also, I'm with you always. You're going to get this protection, right? And I'm telling you to go. And so in this same place, you and I have been commissioned by our king. And the question is, is are we going to be like Nehemiah? We are going to go, or are we going to shrink back? You see, Nehemiah received God's favor because he carried God's burden right where God had placed him. And many times, unfortunately, we miss it. We miss the purpose of favor, we miss the God opportunities of position because so many times we miss the big picture. We miss the revelation of the big picture. And I want to finish this morning by giving you the revelation of the big picture. And I'm hoping that as you enter into Nehemiah's understanding of the big picture, that you would understand there's a bigger picture. And if you would make decisions based on the bigger picture, you'd be less concerned about your own picture. Now, this big picture is a little mind-blowing, and I'm going to do my best to describe this to you. And so if you get a little confused stay with me i'm hoping that it would all make sense but it definitely is mind-blowing you see once upon a time there was a man named daniel and daniel was an israelite who was in babylonian captivity and one day he was reading a prophecy prophesied by another man named jeremiah and while he was reading jeremiah's prophecy He got a revelation of the big picture. You see, Daniel read that Jeremiah had prophesied that Israel would be in exile for 70 years. Now, while reading this, Daniel realized that that 70-year period was coming to an end in his lifetime. So he began to pray. Forgive us, God. Restore us, God. Remember your promises, God. You said through your prophet, God, that we would be in exile for 70 years. And that 70-year season is coming up. Remember your promises. Forgive us. Restore us. Bring us back to Jerusalem. This is all found in Daniel chapter 9. Now watch. While praying, something supernatural happens to Daniel. The Lord sends to Daniel an angel by the name of Gabriel to deliver to him a revelation of an even bigger picture. Now, for those theologians in here, this is known as the 77s in the book of Daniel. I want you to hang with me. I won't lose you. I promise. Basically, here's what the angel Gabriel tells Daniel while Daniel is praying. In Daniel chapter 9, you don't have to go there. You could just stay with me. We're almost through. Verse 24. The angel says this. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Now, let me explain. Gabriel was basically telling Daniel, God has ordained history, He's planned history. God has a timeline. He's ordained history. And in this timeline, the angel is telling Daniel, here's what God has ordained. He's ordained 770s for your people. Well, what does that mean? That's 490 years to take place before he would put an end to sin. Righteousness would reign for eternity, and the Messiah would come and reign. Now That's kind of 490 years. Let me explain more. Now look at verse 25, and this is key to us this morning. Gabriel tells Daniel, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. Let me explain this. Gabriel says, After the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, After a decree is made to rebuild Jerusalem, 69 sevens will pass before the Messiah will be revealed to his people. Now, this is fascinating here. There's a man by the name of Sir Robert Anderson, okay? He's a British astronomer and mathematician. He says this. He makes a strong case that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy exactly to the day. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1 says... In the month of Nisan. From the month of Nisan during the 20th. You ask why the Bible gives all these, right? Why do they give all these random dates? There's so much meaning. From the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, a command was given to rebuild Jerusalem. Are you with me? 69 sevens are going to pass from the month of Nisan, the 20th year of Artaxerxes, until the Messiah is revealed to his people. Now the mathematician Sir Robert Anderson says this, Jesus Christ fulfilled this prophecy exactly to the day, entering Jerusalem on April 6, 32 AD, precisely one thousand, 100, precisely 173,880 days from Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 1. What's the point? God is orchestrating human history. Do you feel that? He's orchestrating human history. Now, there's a big gap here. There's a big gap. There's one more seven left, right? It's been ordained, 497s. There's one more seven left. So from the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the decree that was given in Nehemiah 2, verse 1, to the coming of the Messiah, entering in on a donkey, revealing to Jerusalem their Messiah, in that, 69 sevens have happened. And then Christ is cut off, right? One week, he's cut off on Easter, and he dies. And there's one more seven left, but there's this big gap until that seven takes place, which some people call the church age, the age of the Gentiles, us. Because that was all a decree for Jerusalem and for Israel. You with me? Just, but here's what I want you to know. Here's the point, and we're finished. And thank you for hanging out for this part. God is orchestrating human history. Nehemiah is a part. You and I apart we're all pieces to a much larger and grander picture and as followers of Christ we should understand that the vision is his the burden is his the glory is his And we have the privilege to be invited to participate in his epic story because the story is his. glory is his. The burden is his. The vision is his. The position that I'm currently in is for him. The career that I'm currently thinking about pursuing is for him. God's plans do not revolve around my world, but my world needs to revolve around his plans. This is, believe it or not, the key to satisfaction. It's the upside-down kingdom. The world teaches us satisfaction comes from your own personal pursuit of your own self. Selfish desires this is the upside-down kingdom we do everything opposite of what the world says this is satisfaction stop living stop living for self and start living for God's glory stop living for yourself and start living for God's glory and there may be some casualties there may be some poor times there may be some decisions that you don't want to make you may be held back and you might have to wait but you start living for God's glory satisfaction flows from his glory not from your own purpose and every day matters and every move matters every decision matters because there's a big picture God's in control he's in control he's sovereign he's sovereign over history sovereign over history unbelievable mind-blowing unbelievable He has it written out. He has it written out. The story's written. Thank you, Jesus. You're a part of it. His precious blood was shed so you can be a part of this epic story.